Welcome to Swine Doc Pod with Carthage. My name's Dr. Clayton Johnson. I'm a partner in veterinarian at Carthage Veterinary Service and the host of Swine Doc Pod. Uh, I want to start out, as we often do, with a shout out and a thank you to Jim Eady and his team at swineweb.com. Uh, for those of you who haven't listened to our podcast before, we couldn't be doing this without Jim and, and his support. Not only is Jim instrumental in helping us to, to market this and, and get this uh, link out to where you can access it, but Jim's been tremendously helpful on the technical side of setting up this podcast. Um, Jim and his team at swineweb.com have a very nice website that brings you not only our podcast, but a lot of other industry information. Uh, there's no subscriptions. He's not out to sell you anything. So if you have not been to swineweb.com, I would encourage you to go there, check it out and add it to your bookmarks because I think you'll find a lot of good industry information there. At Swine Doc Pod with Carthage, we like to hit on hot topics, um, and today we're very fortunate to be joined by uh, Dr. John Dean with the University of Minnesota. We're going to talk today about a topic that's maybe not one of the sexiest topics in the pig industry, but it's one that gets a lot of attention, uh, and that is specifically sow mortality. Uh, we're going to talk about the economic impacts to your operation that sow mortality can cause you. I know that's typically complicated and, and hard for us to do good barn math on. We're going to have John take us through his thoughts on that, as well as some of the biologic impacts. Um, you know, what's going on in these animals? And as we've seen sow mortality increase, you know, what do we think that drives that? And, you know, ultimately, if, if we're a producer or a veterinarian, what do we need to know to be up to date on this topic? So thank you very much, John, for, for joining us and, and uh, sharing your time with us. Would you like to do an introduction for yourself to the audience? Sure. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to be here. Um, I grew up in Southern Ontario on a hog farm, uh, went to University of Guelph uh, uh, to do my DBM, went and practiced in Shakespeare, Ontario, along the Avon River, just down the road from Stratford. And um, after a while, I, I realized I probably needed some more training in um, quantitative methods. So I gained my master's and PhD in epidemiology and some in production economics. From there, went on to North Carolina State uh, for approximately seven years uh, during much of the time in the boot of the boom and a little bit of the bust uh, of the industry there. And then ended up here for the last 22 years at University of Minnesota, where I've continued to work in analytic methods, broadening probably into areas of welfare, but um, been involved in questions on uh, sow mortality and mortality trends in general. John, when I was a kid, um, I had a similar upbringing to yours. We didn't own any pigs and I didn't grow up on a farm, but my dad's a mixed animal veterinarian, uh, was when I was a kid and still is, classic mixed animal veterinarian. And uh, dad knew every pig farmer in the county. And when they had work that needed to be done, guess who got dropped off at their farm to help them with that? Um, and I remember as a kid, sow mortality being no fun, but very different no fun than it is today. And, and what I mean by that, John, is, you know, we didn't have the electronic mortality carts and winches and some of those tools to remove the mortality. We had young people like myself at the farm who had strong backs and, and uh, good work ethic that, that were in charge of that. So I can remember it being a, a miserable experience to be honest with you, but an infrequent one. And the herds were much smaller then, right? It was smaller populations of animals. So the mortality should be infrequent. 
But I would certainly say that the incidence of sow mortality has continually risen throughout my career in pig production. Can you kind of level set us in the audience here, John, a little bit with your history? Um, you know, what, what's the history of sow mortality as you've observed it through the years? Where have we been? What have we been through? And where are we at now? I think of uh, two or three main phases uh, of sow mortality. I had the same experience as you did, Clayton, of, of quite low rates of sow mortality on the home farm and in the area. And um, in spite of my practice and my clients' efforts, it continued to rise. Um, and somewhere around the year 2000, uh, warning shots really went up that it, it was at a rate that we were not accustomed to seeing in the industry. Um, before that point, we, we saw some differences between genotypes, and we realized that there's a, a balance between productivity and uh, some of the robustness um, that, that um, we were used to seeing in some of our old genotypes. But um, we analyzed it at that time, characterized mortality, realized that a lot of it was around time of farrowing, that there were stressors during the summer, during lactation and the like. And then probably around three, four years ago, again, we, we saw an increase in, in cell mortality rates associated with prolapses, but also general increases in mortality that followed some of the same um, patterns of happening, especially during hot weather, especially around time of farrowing and uh, lactation uh, continues to be a major challenge. When we think about the economic impacts, John, to um, an operation, um, whether it's, you know, an operation 30 years ago that had minimal sow mortality or one that's dealing consider with considerably more sow mortality now, what are kind of the main points we need to start figuring out to understand economically what sow mortality means to your operation? I, I guess you've had some of the same experience that I have that not only is it a number on a page, it's a disruptive um, activity on the farm, not only seeing it, um, but also um, replacing that animal and getting it out of the barn and the like. And I think sometimes we've underestimated the cost of mortality. It doesn't show up on our profit and loss statement, whether it be growing pigs, whether it be sows. And if we look closely at it, I think we've got to go to something similar to what we've done in growing pigs, where we have a top hog or a full, uh, full market, uh, full value pig. And uh, when we look at sows that way, uh, two things point, uh, come up. Number one is that they got to be culled at, at weaning. They should be culled at, at an optimal parity based on projected um, productivity drops if they get too old. They should be in good condition, so we get a full salvage price, especially at today's uh, market prices. And there's got to be a gilt there that's prepared and ready to, to breed and fill in the next breeding group. And when I, I've studied those, the proportion of sows in, in the herd, whether dying or cult, 
um, make up the majority of the sows in the herd. I, I've looked at records and see as low as 15% of the sows in the herd actually make it to that point of being a good sow. And frankly, something to celebrate. It, it's, it's not, it shouldn't be part of the culling rate. It should be part of the success rate. And, um, and it, it's, it, it's a challenge to get there on our sow farms. That's a really interesting concept, John. Um, the, the success rate you just mentioned, I don't know that I've ever thought about it that way or had somebody explain it that way, but you're, you're exactly right. The, the kind of ideal outcome of a sow, the ideal end result that you talked about for performance on the farm, for economics of the farm, it's not achieved nearly as much as we would like. Um, and I would tell you, even on purebred herds where your replacement rates are higher and, you know, you're trying to call it lower parities and theoretically your success rate should be better. I think it speaks volumes that we're probably in that 15 to 20% range that we get to the finish line for back, lack of a better term that, that, um, you know, ultimately meet all of those objectives. What, uh, what would be a full value sow from your perspective, John? I mean, if we're going to start to think about what the, what the loss is worth, we kind of have to start with what the existing opportunity is, I would think. And can you kind of take us through from a modeling standpoint, what are the attributes that you got to put in to calculate the value of a full value sow? Yeah. And um, I, I, I'd first of all point out, it goes well beyond a salvage value. And the economics of salvage right now is quite good. And, and really culling and mortality are the same except for achieving some salvage value. Uh, often not all of it, but, but part of it. Beyond that, it has a lot to do with what we call opportunity costs. The opportunity to do better and, and to make the farm run better. And I, I actually take the extra step in economics and say, who cares about pigs per sow per year? It's the pigs produced by the farm using the facilities that you have. And for lack of better terms, sometimes it's pigs per sow space. And, and it's the holes that we create uh, when we cull or, or lose a sow uh, too early. And so we have other economics. So we've got the economics of the lost litter um, that if, if a, a uh, pig is, is um, uh, if a sow dies. But there's also a loss litter if a sow turns up not in pig, that um, we expected to have those pigs and, and that sow space was un, underutilized by a sow that simply um, was, was not found earlier. It's especially expensive if we end up with those sows contributing uh, it, that we lose uh, contribute to a uh, lost um, opportunity to make target, uh, wean target uh, for that sow unit. Because then we, we assumedly have empty space after that and we struggle with, I shouldn't say cheating, but manipulating the system and adding cost to the system to fit other pigs into that space. Um, and, and that's simply what we do. And we rarely capture the cost of trying to manipulate the system. Um, we also need to count um, the cost of bringing in another guilt, not only in, in the cost of that replacement guilt, but the fact that the progeny don't perform as well uh, from a guilt. And I would argue, 
can contribute to the overall health of that weaning group. Um, again, not an area where we study the population as a whole effect, but um, we've seen it time and time again that, that um, gilt progeny contribute, contribute to pro problems. The, the other area is, is, do we have that prepared, anim, prepared gilt available? Or do we cheat to fill in that breeding target? Um, and we can do it two ways, keeping sows we shouldn't keep or uh, bringing in gilts that aren't quite ready. And we see that again, because overall, the thing that we really don't model is the fact that mortality and culls um, can cluster. They don't occur randomly or evenly week by week. Some weeks are worse than others. Some weeks we have more prolapses than others, which brings up a whole set of questions in and of itself. But we can see at the pattern of sow removal, if it's not predictable, it's actually disruptive to the system. I think you talk about a very common problem on sow farms, John, with making bad decisions in terms of trying to hit the breed target um, and really short-term decisions, ignoring the long-term costs that are implicated with adding more gilts or, or keeping around that sow that ideally needs to be a cull sow. Um, just to try and make breed target. And where I say it's a cyclical problem is we think we're fixing one problem. We're really just shifting the problem to another area of the farm. Um, and I think the reality is, John, most farms are going to do both. They're not just going to increase guilt numbers. They're not just going to slow down their culling rate. They're going to do both because breed target is king. And, you know, to your point on an, an empty space in the farrowing house, we've, we've educated our farm workers very well that that's, that's one of the greatest sins in pig production, right? That farrowing crate is a huge fixed unit of cost represented to, for the farm. And our throughput is dependent on us keeping that farrowing crate in use, right? Keeping it with farrowing sows and lactating litters. Um, you know, a great example is when we, we just say, well, you know, if our death rate's gone up, we just need more gilts. So just bring in more gilts every week or every four weeks. How often you get them? Well, the GDU didn't get any bigger, right? Nobody ever added a room to the GDU when we made that decision. So now we're crowding the gilts, you know, now we're putting more pressure on them that way. So that's where I say we kind of shift the problem. And I, I get that, um, you know, the breed target is king, but it's got to be sustainably met. You know, I mean, when we're just bringing reading to hit the number on the paper, we're maybe not thinking at the level we need to, to ultimately project the profitability of the farm. Yeah, and I just add, it's really hard to design a supply uh, with inconsistent culling and sow mortality from group to group. And so we, we think we have a pattern and we'll still get caught. Um, we see general ideas such as seasonality in both mortality and, and um, reduced uh, reproductive rates, but it, it, it adds what, what um, in quality control um, terms we, we talk about is noise to the system that we have to pay for somehow in our, uh, in our production decisions to be able to overcome. I'd say even, work, uh, even more sang for sang than uh, filling the fairing room is filling the nursery or, or the wean to finish barn. That's right. There, we, I, I rarely talk about because it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. But 
the big question is why doesn't it happen? Do we have too much capacity in our cell units? In, in other words, we, we've created enough extra pigs, though we often don't see those extra pigs, or do we smooth out the system and, and we don't really record how we do that? One little trick I do is I don't even um, analyze number of pigs weaned. Uh, I analyze number of pigs born. Um, because that is uh, a more difficult number to change based on, on trying to smooth out, uh, smooth out the system. John, one of the observations that I make with clients I get to work with is that uh, smaller producers typically get more worked up about sow mortality. And um, I would tell you that it all comes down to that noise that you're talking about, the variability in the sow mortality. One week, it's a big crooked number, and the next week, it's not that bad. And if you've got 30 to, to 60 sow farms in a big production system, those sow mortality numbers may not be trending where you want them, but they're fairly consistent because that noise washes out from farm to farm. But if it's just the Clayton and John pig farm, right, that noise cripples us from that nursery empty space because we have a big blip at our farm in a short amount of time. And now we have a throughput problem and we don't have four or five other pig flows to cover that up and meet, meet our packer commitments at the end of the day. Um, now I say all that, you know, I don't know that those producers for all their time and effort uh, are, are ultimately making sow mortality a lot better than the big systems are. Have you got any perspective on that, John? You know, do you see anything when you, when you get a look at production data, do you see any attributes associated with farms that do better or worse from a sow mortality standpoint? Or are there examples out there that we kind of, kind of look at and say, this is at least associated with a better or worse outcome, whether it causes it or not? It, it, there's two parts to that answer, unfortunately. One is that there are farms differing in, in the number of sows that, that die, especially. But it's been harder to identify the reasons why those sow units differ. In some cases, for instance, we have herds on the, with the same genotype, with the same um, feed source, and, and you've seen the same, um, where there is, um, there is real differences. Some herds, um, do cull much more aggressively and um, save themselves some mortality, it, it, it appears. Some farms um, do seem to have a, a better medication and intervention pattern. I, I'd say that the, the farms can differ in their care, but we did a survey about oh, many years ago, probably around 15 years ago, where we, at, instead of asking the public, what are your welfare concerns? We asked the people in the barns, what are your welfare concerns? Uh, and, and the top welfare concern was downer and, uh, and, um, and dead sows. And I think in part, they are right, but there is that demoralizing aspect especially finding them on Monday morning, for instance, where, uh, where um, there's been difficulties during the weekend or needing to cross foster a bunch of sows in the parent crate and seeing good healthy sows that, that have prolapses. So there has been some success with interventions and especially uh, looking at lameness in, in some detail can be useful as well. 
I think uh, Chris Rodemaker has a wonderful case study on the ability to improve sow mortality through treatment. Um, I don't know if you've seen him kind of share that, but uh, he he worked with some uh, interns, vet students, I can't remember exactly who, but they visited a farm for a couple of weeks and, and basically took over doing chores in the morning um, at that sow farm. And they would, you know, as, as the animals got up and were fed each morning, they would walk behind them and individually evaluate them and they'd hang cards. And I think that piece is important. They didn't go through all the time to treat each individual animal right away. They got through the herd while everybody was up or while everybody should have been up and eating their morning meal. And that allowed them to get a good uh, observation on each individual animal before they laid back down to rest. Um, and he showed pretty convincingly with SPC data, if I remember right, that they had an impact on sow mortality at that farm. And I thought one of the neat things was that that impact sustained um, exactly what you're talking about, John, the, the, the psychological impact of those dead animals, the physical impact of having to remove them. When the, when the farm saw that the sow mortality was reduced, even after those interns and Chris stopped coming to the farm every day, they picked up the ball and ran with it. And I think that's a really neat case study because it can be easy to get defeated on this topic. You know, those downer animals that have been treated and, and haven't responded. Some of those individual cases can be frustrating, but as we know, right, we're managing populations of animals. And even if the interventions only work in 70, 75% of the time, that's a heck of a lot better than just not implementing the intervention. Uh, I'd, I'd agree fully. And um, a, a trick I've done sometimes is look at the, uh, at the treatment records uh, on the farm and, and uh, compare them by day of the week. And if we see large variation by day of the week, it's probably not at the, at the level of attention and intervention that we need to see on that farm. But that gets down to having people available every day and sticking around uh, long enough and cutting into other activities um, that, that do the treatments. And sometimes we haven't seen that either in our industry. And there's examples uh, with lameness uh, of that exactly, where um, maybe we have an idea of what we'd like to do with hoof trimming or, or some other physical procedure to the animal that is absolutely going to prevent, you know, some chronic lameness issues from developing. But the, you know, the skill level that that takes, the labor that it takes, and just the, the, the constant, you know, competing for, for resource needs on the farm sometimes makes those things unpractical. Even if you want to do them, you just don't simply have the, the time or the, the skill set to do it in every case. Go ahead, John. Yeah, um, I just add to that and, and say that clinical observation is still limited on, on our farms by the amount of time. If we think about the amount of time we look at each sow, it's limited. And that's where I'm getting excited about some of the um, uh, automatic sow monitoring. And mm -hmm. I think questions on activity, especially in the parent crate, do they get up? Do they get down? Do they eat? It is probably the biggest indicator of a, a, a much, and it appears to be a much better indicator of overall sow health than almost anything we can do simply by looking at, at the sow. Um, and, and that really comes back in many cases to questions about lameness, but not only lameness, as far as their willingness to eat maintain condition lactate and, and the like. And um, I, I'm looking forward to the time when, when we have a lot better 
um, monitoring of our, our, our sour to be able to get those interventions earlier. Remote sensors are definitely a, a huge area of discussion in the industry. There's a lot of new technology startup companies that are entering that space, and a lot of them are starting in environmental monitoring, as you would imagine. But John, I know you've, you've probably worked quite a bit on some of the projects using cameras to try and estimate body weight and, and guilt confirmation and, and all those things that we call husbandry today. Um, but, you know, trying to use artificial intelligence and whether it's cameras or sensors on tags with those animals that estimate motion, there's a lot of cool toys that are going to come at us. What do you, what do you think on, on estimating that sow's movement or behavior patterns, John? Is it, is it going to be a sensor that's in an ear tag or is it going to be a camera that makes those observations? Or, or if you had, if you had to bet on one of those horses to win the race, would you put half your money on each of them? Or do you think there's one clear direction we need to go? I, I think uh, it, the sensor in the ear is much more durable, and uh, and they're working now not only on um, figuring out what's the important data, which is actually less than sometimes um, people imagined in the past, but how to um, do a preliminary analysis and be able to send out and identify uh, those sows that are particularly at risk, um, and. I, and I, I've looked at it in a couple different ways. And I think even identifying which sows should be called based on prior behavior would add quite a bit to, to the culling decision. So I, I, cameras are difficult to maintain in barns and they're very uh, demanding of processing capability and, and either on the farm or a lot of transmission bandwidth to get it off the farm. And so somehow reducing that data flow is one of our big challenges. Yeah. And that's certainly been one of the barriers that's popped right up is the sensor can do many, many things. Getting the data from the sensor to where you are from the farm is a whole different story. Um, you know, John, one of my favorite things uh, to, to know when there's an out-of-touch politician is when they're advertising that they're going to come fix Wi-Fi in the rural communities. And I'm like, oh, man, you have never spent any time in a rural community because my cell phone still doesn't work in half the places that I go. G give me decent cell reception to start with, then we'll work on Wi-Fi. But it, I mean, that connectivity is a big, big deal. John, even if we had a, a new product tomorrow that was going to improve our sow mortality by 2% or whatever the number is, and we felt really good about it, we said that's going to work. Um, it's hard for me to help producers make that decision from an economic perspective. You know, with growing pigs, it's easy for me to assign that opportunity cost. I can kind of project when that pig's going to market. And I know it's, I know it's value as a full market pig. And then I can look at variable cost from here to there to understand, okay, what's the opportunity cost of that pig today? And from that, I think we can make very good decisions on the grow finish side with interventions and, and cost effective interventions. But the sow mortality is so much more complex. Um, is there some barn math that, that we should be doing, John, to help make decisions on intervention strategies and whether or not they're cost effective? Or is it just complicated enough that you need a good economic model and you need to go to the spreadsheet and enter those assumptions in and you're not going to be able to rattle that off in 30 seconds walking through a farrowing room? What's, what's your thoughts on that? I, I, I think there's a, a, a twofold answer to that. First of all, I don't think the economic models that complicated. It's more a accounting model of, of making sure we account for 
all the costs associated with with a dead sow or uh, or uh, uh, a cull sow that that showed up in in, in our, our gestation barn, and um, remembering the factors and assigning um, values to them it is something that we can start discussing in the barn. Um, one of the biggest challenges I have in in um, production accounting is that if I don't know, it doesn't mean the answer is it has no cost. It, it really means I don't know. And um, putting in best guesses in, in many cases is important. Uh, for instance, the question, if, if I have a parity three sow that died and, um, and it was pregnant, we can uh, count the loss of, of uh, uh, salvage value, we can count the cost of the loss litter, um, uh, in some cases in opportunity cost for uh, 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 an integrated unit. Um, but then we can start doing some discussion and saying, so um, what in, in, um, in research or study happens if we get more guilt progeny in, in the system? And um, how much is that cost? I can come up with numbers that uh, progeny of gilts are worth $5 less in terms of subsequent mortality, likelihood of becoming a full value pig with even, without even counting the cost that they probably carry more disease into our nurseries. Mm -hmm. So five bucks a pig, it's, it's another $60. Um, and, um, and, and we just need to start counting that. And we can ask as well, do you have a guilt to replace this sow? Or are you tight on gilts at this point? If so, it's gonna cost you more somewhere, somewhere in the system. Easy to come up with $200 in, in uh, lost productivity. One way or another, keeping a bad sow back or, or or, or otherwise, a, a study we did, we worked on sow mortality 20 years ago and, and still something I, I'm, I'm interested in. If you were below breeding target, the sow mortality was higher in that breeding group than if you were over breeding target, which makes perfect sense because you're just keeping back sows that you shouldn't be keeping. And in some, a few farms, it was extraordinarily bad um, and we knew it. Uh, and so um, we need to start discussing those factors as well of how easy is it to meet breeding target and what are we doing to, to make the farm run as smooth as possible. Uh, at one, one of the things that we see uh, as veterinarians and often producers don't see is how, what, uh, for some farms, how well a farm can click. That varying rates high, mortality rates low, it just keeps running day after day. And, and, I, I, and other um, managers or farmers would say, oh, they're cheating on their, uh, uh, on their records or not telling the whole story. But there are farms that click along. And one of the things I've tried to do in the past with veterinary students is not only go to the problems, but also take them to some of the best producers there are and how easy it is to produce those pigs in that situation. And that should be part of uh, 
it's hard to make it an economic model, but we have to attribute some of the costs and, and some of the pain in the system and the noise in the system to, to that erratic um, loss of sounds. Yeah. And I would say those producers that kind of have um, boring production metrics. And what I mean by that is not a lot of variability, right? They breed the same number of gilts every week. They call the same number of sows every week. They farrow the same number of gilts, every, gilts and sows every week. When they have boring biological performance, they typically have boring economic performance as well, right? Uh, you don't get those peaks and valleys in revenues like you can have if you have peaks and valleys in the biological throughput. And so I say boring in the most complimentary respect, right? <laughs> those visits are, for me, they're fun, but they're also really challenging um, because how do I help those folks get better as a veterinarian? I mean, they're already knocking it out of the park. Um, you know, when you go to a farm that's riddled with bad purrs, it's pretty easy to figure out what the what the plan needs to be. And I know exactly how I can help that producer. It's more challenging when they're, you know, they're knocking the ball out of the park on, on, on all the metrics. John, I wanted to ask you from an international perspective. I know you have good contacts outside of just North America. And we don't see this sow mortality problem necessarily escalating all over the world. Do you have any thoughts on why that is? Why it, it does seem to be a regional challenge. It's not just the United States, obviously, um, but why the sow mortality increases appear to be somewhat regional in nature and some other regions of the pig producing world haven't been as impacted here the last 10 years or so? I, I'd name three factors. Number one is the acceptance of, of slaughter plants for compromised sows. And so we see certain markets where uh, sows that uh, can't walk well or, or have ambulatory problems still are slaughtered. And so we see more sows moving in, into that cull stream uh, rather than, than dying on the farm or being euthanized on the farm. Very few euthanasia in some of these markets. A, a second reason is um, labor availability and um, ability to intervene. And I think it's, it, there's two factors. Number one is that there's more people uh, because labor is cheaper and more available, but it's also that there's a culture of pig rearing uh, to draw those people from. They grew up with pigs. They, they, they know when a, a, a pig is, is, um, is beginning to look a bit off and, and I even have a hard time explaining what early signs of, of a pig um, in, in early uh, portions of disease uh, actually have, a bit of behavior, a bit of um, uh, depression and the like. But there mm -hmm. are those people there and we have to value them in our system and, and there's more in some markets. I, I think the last reason is a, an emphasis on, um, uh, on uh, less of an emphasis on productivity and more of an emphasis on longevity of those animals. And, I, I, and we've mentioned it a, a bit before. If you look at evolutionary biology, it's really hard to make a sow super productive and, 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 and have low mortality rates. That just doesn't happen in many species. Mm -hmm. You have one or the other. Sows are some of the most productive um, mammals as far as milk production, much more than a dairy cow over the time. If you take a look at the growth rate of the litter, like yep. 
in some cases, we have 50% of the body mass of a sow being put into milk and producing piglets so over uh, three weeks. And there's very few species that, that can do that, mice and seals, uh, according to my graduate students. So I, I think there's been differences in culture and not really accepting um, some of not only the, the uh, sow mortality, but, but some of the challenges of keeping those sows in the herd. I know, John, that you, uh, uh, you're a deep thinker and, and you appreciate, you know, looking beyond the surface value of challenges like sow mortality. You mentioned that you've done um, some, some work in the area of evolutionary biology and, and female reproduction and the survivability of reproducing females. Uh, you want to kind of share with the audience some of your observations from that area of study? And is it something that pig producers should be thinking about from a, from a, uh, a go-forward standpoint? Do we need to be paying attention to the study of evolutionary biology because we can learn from that? Yeah, and it's, it's not a discussion uh, on an individual sow. It's a discussion uh, on this population of sows that we have. So it, it gets more theoretical than analytical in many cases in, in um, my experience. But I'll just give you an example growing up on the, on the farm. We began with some really tough sows on our farm, and um, we rarely saw sow mortality but the productivity wasn't the greatest. And in part, it wasn't that good because if a sow got in trouble, she, she stopped her uh, prioritizing reproduction. If a sow got a fever, she would dry up. Mm -hmm. If a sow was skinny at weaning, she simply would not come into heat until we got some condition on her. And um, we discovered English breeds uh, coming over and, um, and they were extraordinarily more productive. But I think part of that production was actually part of this answer to evolutionary biology of saying, we'll invest more in reproduction and making sure the progeny are produced and less in maintaining um, the, 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 the um, female. And I, I think that's continuing to be a challenge in, in what we have in our barns. It's not a popular statement in many cases. We'd like to have everything, um, but it's difficult to balance it out. Evolutionary biology and biology in general uh, tends to talk about um, sows or any organizing, it, organism needing to feed, uh, needing to um, flee, um, needing a, a flee from, um, from certain threats. And we see that in, in um, group housing that um, you can flee or you can fight. You can also fight um, um, infectious organisms. And finally, you need to reproduce at some level. But um, as we see with, um, uh, with feral pigs, uh, if there isn't much pressure on the population, uh, it's going to grow very quickly because, um, uh, because pigs and sows are, are, have high reproduction rates. But along with that, uh, historically, if you take a look at uh, wild populations, they're much more protective of the female than they are of the progeny, and they're mm -hmm. willing to 
suspend some of the progeny for various reasons. And frankly, I think it extends into some of the questions on variation in, in weights and survivability of the progeny. In some ways, it wasn't designed to allow everyone to survive. And so is the target zero mortality or is it in, in the progeny? Is it some level of, of survivability, especially in the first few weeks? So, so we, we balance all these together, but I don't think we can continue to have increased productivity of the sows, which includes number of pigs and weight of those pigs without compromising um, survivability. Progress is rarely linear. Um, and, and two steps forward and one step back is still a net improvement. And you're exactly right, John. None of us like the one step back to, to the point where we often won't admit it <laughs> to our own detriment, right? Um, you know, we, we sometimes struggle by just saying, all right, yeah, I mean, the net value proposition is greater than what we had before. Are, are there some hiccups, some unintended consequences that we observed after we made these changes? Sure. But the net benefit has been great. And I think you made great comparisons with the, the wild pig population and the domestic pig population. And the wild pig population has obviously had different evolutionary pressures on it over the last 50 years. Um, but, you know, we often joke the, the feral sow pharaohs eight and weans 12, right? Um, and I, I had a chance to, to meet somebody who worked at, at, a, at a, a, oh, a, a, a pig ranch, not a ranch where they raise pigs, but, you know, a, a ranch in Texas where you could go to, to hunt wild pigs. And I kind of asked him, you know, what are the predators of these wild pigs, right? You know, what are they, are there mountain lions, you know, wolves, what, what actually get these things? And uh, he looked at me and he said, nothing. He said, once those pigs are 35 pounds, John, there is no predator in the world that can take out a wild pig. And you think about that, right? I mean, that shows you the difference we have between our domestic and wild pig populations. You know, you think about it all the time when you're in barn. Uh, if a farm's got a metritis problem where you've got, you know, uterine infections and the farm is just beyond itself working on their sleeving hygiene and, and the hygiene with breeding. And, you know, you're thinking to yourself, man, go watch a boar breed a sow, right? You know, there's no hygiene and sanitation involved in that process. And it worked for thousands of years without killing off the population from metritis. So it certainly is two very divergent populations. And I think, you, you know, you made a great point with our selection for the reproductive attributes. The, the reality is you can only use energy in so many ways. And, and each of us as individuals naturally shunt energy to different directions. Um, you know, all of us have maintenance needs and our immune system is largely included in the maintenance needs as I understand it. But if we're consuming more energy and nutrients than what we need just for maintenance, the leftover can go to, if you're, if you're young, growth generally. And then once you go through puberty, you start to shift a little bit of that from growth to reproduction. But I, I think to try and paraphrase what you're saying is we've selected for reproductive females in the domestic pig lines. We have done so by selecting for those that shunt nutrients toward reproduction preferably. And that the cost of that is when the animal has a health challenge or when you know there is a significant stress on the animal to their own detriment they won't shunt those nutrients back to taking care of themselves. They're almost too good a mothers in some respect. Is that a fair way to describe it? You, you've got it spot on that um, it's, it, it, as we increase reproductive capabilities, 
our um, ability to maintain that sow is going to become more challenging. And we either need A, more skill, or, or, or B, uh, new technologies to support that sow. And that's some of the things we've been talking about. And we have to remember the most stressful times during, during that sow's life, during lactation, especially during the summer. If we truly compromise feed intake, um, survivability does become very challenging for any species. I, I'd add one other comparison, and that's with dairy cows. Um, one, um, it, it, one, uh, one of the early things I worked on um, in, uh, in welfare was sow lameness. And uh, I had the bright idea of bringing in uh, a dairy veterinarian to start training us uh, on how to approach lameness. And um, he said, well, I didn't even know you had a problem with lameness. And so then he walked into the gestation barn and said, you have as much problem as we do. And uh, then I brought them into the fairing room. And at that point, um, they, they were using uh, woven wire yet uh, as a flooring. And he just said, what in the world are you doing? I'm paraphrasing a bit there, uh -huh. saying, you have all those lame sows. And I saw claw lesions there. And you bring them onto this floor. How can you survive as a, as a farm doing that? And, and the simple answer was, well, we accept a higher level of culling and a higher level of mortality because we can afford to replace them because yeah. our, we, produce, we produce more than um, half, a, half a gilt per year. Mm -hmm. And so even between species, uh, we can do comparisons and learn. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of perspective out there for pig producers who want to go find it. The, the dairy industry, you know, we mentioned that there are other countries, other regions that, that aren't seeing the same level of sow mortality. Um, some of that perspective producers may get, John, is that two steps forward, one step back. You know, they may they may go look at those other examples and say, yeah, I see how I can make sow mortality better. I also don't see how I can do it in such a way that overall benefits the net value proposition of my operation. Now, all that being said, please don't take that as, as me trying to discourage anybody from looking for newer and greater things, because you said it very well, John, technology doesn't stand still. You know, and, and we often think of our problems of today through the lens of today's technology. But the reality is, whether it's remote sensors that help us with better animal husbandry um, or, you know, better treatment technologies, better treatment modalities, um, the, all the, the, the genome sequencing that we can do, there are many new tools that will be available to us in the future. And absolutely, some of them will help our current dilemma with sow mortality. John, anything else that you want to share with the audience on sow mortality? Any, any new technologies or new areas of studies we haven't talked about that, you know, if you're a producer, you need to keep one eye open and one, one ear to the ground trying to pay attention to? It's, it's not a new study, but an old study that we did. Uh, it, it, coming back to lactational feed intake, we saw almost all the sow mortality associated uh, with one level, uh, one or more days. Of, of low lactational feed intake. And so it does point back to the ability to maintain the comfort of sows and the ability to eat and drink, lay down milk, repeat um, a, as a cycle in our, uh, our, our, uh, in, in our fairing rooms. And in some ways it's not more complicated than that. Yeah. And evolutionary 
biology will tell us that as well. Keep her healthy, keep her eating. And um, we got to focus on those. That's a great example of two steps forward and one step back. The, the automated feeding systems in the farrowing house, right? Uh, they make uh, ad libitum feed an option. That's a step forward. They reduce labor to get it done. That's two steps forward. But now we aren't making a visual observation of the sow every day with that we did with the hand feeding, right? When you and I were kids and we were doing the scoop of feed, we were writing on the card exactly how many pounds or kilograms we fed them at that feeding. And we could know instantly if she was backing off a feed because we fed her every day and we had those records, you know, two steps forward, one step back. We just need to recognize that. And I think as an industry, we can be much less stubborn in a lot of areas. But, you know, when we see that one step back, let's just say, okay, that's a constraint to the current process. How are we going to get over that, right? How can we turn that one problem into the next two steps forward? And then there'll be another one step back that we'll get to address at that point. <laughs> at least you will. I might be done by that time, but uh, uh, not uh, allowed, John, not allowed. A lot of fun um, being part of this industry. Yeah. Well, and uh, thank you for your contributions contributions to it, John. Um, I really appreciate your time today and, and through all our interactions through the years at the, the Layman Conference and to your whole team at the University of Minnesota. You guys have, have really developed a large portion of the thought leaders in today's industry. Um, and, and you guys deserve a lot of credit, not only for doing that historically, but for continuing to do that. So thank you guys very much. Thanks very much for this opportunity. Yep. All right, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up here. I want to thank Dr. John Dean with the University of Minnesota for his time and, and thoughts on, on such an important topic for the industry. For Swine Doc Pod with Carthage, I'm Dr. Clayton Johnson. Thanks for listening and have a great day.